Would you take your scriptures? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the receding riches of his grace and in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, you have given us some very specific instructions concerning your word. In those directives, we learn how important your word is. You have told us, see that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. You say anyone who adds their own words to your word, you will rebuke and reprove a liar. You have told us, Lord, to teach your commands to our children, talking about them in everything we do, for this is how they will learn and grow. Help us this morning to learn from your word. Grant us grace to hear and apply its truths to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We looked at the reason God needed to send Jesus Christ into this world. Man had rebelled against him. He had died spiritually through his act of rebellion. We also saw that the powerful work of God through Jesus Christ there was hope given to all men. The first part of the gospel is hard for men to hear. It shows them for exactly what they are, traitors, and they don't like to hear it. It declares their worthlessness before their creator. But Paul does not stop with this part of the gospel message. He goes on to show that there's hope, and what a glorious hope it is. He said we were all lost in our sins and trespasses. And then he shows that God has made a way, a way in which men can be redeemed from this terrible darkness. He begins to tell us of the great love of God and how God has so graciously shown that love to us through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He talks of this great mercy that God has toward us, toward his people, and how through Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection reveals to men the truth of his love. He reaches down from heaven to a people who deserve nothing from him and offers to all who will hear and believe a glorious salvation. What a message of hope he gives to all who will pay attention and hear. 
He paints a picture of total darkness and then begins to offer through a small pinprick of light. He reveals to that that God has a plan, a plan that will bring his people out of this dark, terrible and oppressive darkness and into a glorious and brilliant light. It's not by the power of your own eyes that you will see this light. For the eyes of unregenerate men are blind to all things. They have hearts that will, will not tolerate any light. Paul understands this about men and knows that they are required much more than a, just a, a light shine in their faces. So what is the hope Paul brings? He makes it clear that the hope comes from God and from God himself. He says the reason these people are now saved and filled with God's spirit and are showing their love toward God and others is not because of their own works, but because of the works of God in their lives. He says we were made alive with Christ even when we were dead in trespasses. You were not saved because of some hidden faith that God saw within you. You were saved because of God's work to change your heart. Dead men have no faith. You were made alive. It was God's power that changed you. It was God's power that provided the faith you now live in. This should bring great joy. It should bring great comfort to your heart. If you were saved by God's works, not your own, you should know you will be carried through this life. Carried into God's presence by his power, not your own. We are his workmanship. Paul made this plain with his last statement, verse 5. It is by grace you have been saved. He goes on in verses 6 and 7 to explain this. Let's examine these two verses this morning. First, we shall see that it is God who has raised us. Second, we shall hear how and where he has seated us. Last, we will study the expression of his kindness toward us. We were made alive in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? How has God worked out this great miracle? This taking sinful men and making them into new creations. Read the first part of verse 6. And raised us up together. To comprehend this simple statement you must first understand what Jesus Christ came into this world to do. Christ was sent by God the Father into the world to do for man what he could never do for himself. The promise of the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants was, I will be your God and you will be my people. The whole of the Old Testament is pointing to the way in which this will be completed. The way is Jesus Christ. Man was in rebellion against God. He had lost his place of honor and was under the curse of death because of his rebellion. God was not willing that all of his creation should be lost to sin. So he prepared a way in which a group of these rebellious men could be saved. He first gave the law through Moses to show men what sin was and just how destructive it could be. He also showed through the law how impossible it was for men to keep the law by their own will. No man descending from Adam could keep the law perfectly. Thus, none could be saved. 
The law required the shedding of innocent blood to remove the stain of sin, and there were no innocent men. The blood of animals was only a temporary fix that covered man's sins for a short time. The law made it very clear. For men to be saved from the, this terrible state, they had, to plunge, they had plunged themselves into. They had to have a redeemer. He had to live a perfect life, and the Old Testament scriptures make it very clear. No man coming from Adam could ever accomplish this task. In Ezekiel 14, God tells the people of his coming judgment for sin on the nation and the rebels against him. This is an earthly judgment, not an eternal judgment. That's important. This is an earthly judgment, not an eternal judgment. Ezekiel 14, 20 says, Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They could, would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. These three men, these are three men, these are the ones that are considered in the Old Testament to have been the most religious, the most righteous of all men. Righteous enough to deliver their own lives from an earthly judgment, but they could not have delivered themselves from the eternal judgment of God. No man can do that. Consider Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to, to him, he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. It goes on to show that with this change of heart, the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. He told him to walk in the ways of the Lord. Keep his commands. He says, You should do this because I am bringing forth through Israel my branch my servant who will rescue my people. He will be the stone upon which my people will be delivered. It will be in him that my people will come to salvation. When his people come to their place with God and are settled into their salvation, prosperity will reign. Holiness will be established. In Zechariah 3.10, he declares, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and fig tree. Now, understand this. Joshua in this represents sinful mankind. Those seated with him represent the church. The angel of the Lord, the branch, is, of course, Jesus Christ. The day of cleansing is the day of Christ's resurrection. The filthy clothes are sin, and the new garments, the righteousness of Christ. Who is it? Who is it that takes the old clothes off Joshua? Who places the garments on him? He does not do it himself. It is done in the direction of God. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, we're told about this work of God as he explains the new covenant that is coming. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, this was all fulfilled in the perfect life, the atoning death, and the resurrection victory of Jesus over the spiritual enemies of this world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God has, as Paul declared in Ephesians 1, by his own goodwill, by his own pleasure, he chose a people unto himself, and through Christ has drawn them unto himself. Jesus came into this world as the perfect man. He came to live the perfect life, to die the atoning death. Both, But both his life and death were not enough. He had to overcome his death, and he did that through his resurrection. He returned to the Father to present his sacrificed blood on behalf of his people. He did this so they could come with him into heaven. A person must first be crucified with him by dying unto self and living for Christ. How can you accomplish these things? Well, you cannot. Paul says you must be made alive with Christ. How can you be made alive when you're dead? The only way is to be raised by the same power that raised Christ. The only way is to be chosen by God's good pleasure. How can you know this marvelous grace? If you will hear the gospel message and will believe on Jesus, then you will see you were raised by God with Christ. The blessings of being called by God don't stop with raising you from the dead. There is more, verse 6b and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're raised. You're raised from the state of spiritual death by the power of God, giving you a new heart. Within that new heart are the gifts of faith and repentance. But along with these gifts is an even more important gift. It's the place which you are now given, a place at the right hand of your Savior. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. Do you get that? Does that not bring great joy to your heart that you're going to be seated with Christ in heaven, in heavenly places? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and you are with him on his throne. This is part of the mystery of the gospel, which has been revealed to the Apostle Paul. How can God take one who is sinful and bring him into God's presence? God says sin can't enter his presence. He had to send one to redeem men from their sin. Jesus is that redeemer. He has paid the price for your sins you could not pay. Christ took your place in death. He suffered the curse that you might be freed from it. Now, because of his work, you're made into a new creation. The catch, if I can put it that way, is that you are now in Jesus Christ. You are his property, bought and paid for. You are joined with Christ in his death. Romans 6, 5. 
For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, I'm looking forward to that. To be like Christ when he comes back. We are because of faith extended to us in the new heart, children of Abraham, and participants in the covenant of redemption. Paul says in Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. What a glorious picture this paints. We're saved by grace and given a new heart. The Spirit of God was given us, so we become the temple of God. When did all of this happen? And what does it mean for us? Colossians 2, 3. I'm reading from the NIV here. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. This clearly tells us it all happened while we were trapped in sin. Therefore, you can see it was not because of your actions. You were still in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Circumcision was a form used to bring cleansing. You were at the time this happened in your life still unclean. He tells you without any hidden language that God made you alive with Christ. He forgave you your sins. How did he do it? He canceled the written code. He did away with all the regulations that you could not keep. He fulfilled them for you. He did something very specific with it. He nailed it to that cross. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you could not live. There's none of us here can live a perfect life. He kept it every single point in that law. He was perfect and through his perfect life, he fulfilled all that was required of you in the law. Then he offered himself in your place as a sacrifice for you. He was taken outside the city. He was nailed to a cross in your place. He died, was separated from the Father on your behalf. Because he had perfectly kept the law, his death was able to be offered on behalf of others. Your failure to keep the rules and regulations were nailed to that cross with him. You now have his perfect life through his atoning death. Because of his life and sacrifice, God made you alive with Christ. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. Because of his victory over the grave, over hell, and over Satan, you have another great blessing. You were in him as he hung upon Calvary's cross. You were in him as he lay in the grave. You were in him as he was raised from that grave. Therefore, you are now seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Not because of anything within you, but because of the power of God who raised him from that grave. You're saved by the same power that raised him. You are saved because you were in him, not because of anything God foresaw in you. 
Heaven forbid that anyone would think they had any hand whatsoever in their salvation. To think that is to believe in another gospel that is no gospel at all. God made you alive with Christ. Could it be any clearer than that? Ephesians 1.11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God chose you. God chose you to be one of those who would be made alive in Jesus Christ. What was this plan he had predetermined for you? That you would be with Christ in the heavenly realms? Could you think of a greater blessing? I don't think so. Not standing in heaven with Christ, but seated with him. You know what that means? To be seated with him on his throne, it says the matter is finished and your position is secure. It's secure. The work done for you is complete. You're called to rest in that work. The question we're left with is what is God's purpose in giving to us such a great and marvelous salvation? Verse 7 that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It should be clear that God's purpose in saving a people of himself reaches well beyond man. The chief end of his plan was his own glory. The matchless beauty and transforming power is displayed so that his grace can be clearly seen. Is this just God being selfish and self-serving? No. This passage shows that God's great majesty and condescending tenderness are all put together to provide a picture of his glory and attributes reflected for us in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He is covering you with blessing after blessing. We are the crown jewels of God's love. There was once a wealthy lady who never wore any jewelry. She was asked why she didn't wear jewelry since she was very capable and very, could very easily have afforded it. She answered, God has provided for her jewels. When asked to show them, she called her two sons out and said, these are my jewels. God has raised his children up as his jewels, crowns of his grace and mercy. You as a believer are a monument to God's character. Did you know that? Did you understand that? Because God has raised you from the dead, you are now a monument to him, to his glory and power. He saved you from destruction. He raised you to the heights of heavenly bliss. He did all of this at a tremendous cost to himself in that he did not spare his only begotten son. He has done this all and has not denied one of his attributes but has displayed them all, even his justice. His divine kindness has been shown to you mostly through the death of Christ on the cross but also by the mercy offered in his life, by the call of his voice by the gift of his yoke, by the promise of eternal life, everything. Everything Christ did in his life on this earth 
in his death and resurrection and his taking his seat at the Father's right hand, all of that has been to show kindness to those the Father has given him. Note the way Paul words verse 7. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He says God's plan was to show the exceeding riches of his grace. The word exceeding or incomparable, which is in different translations, also means abounding. The idea of something that is exceeding that has gone beyond the mark. Romans 5.20, he speaks concerning sin. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In the letter to the Philippians in 4.7, he spoke of the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. His point, his point is that the grace of God is not narrow. Man, this, this grace is, is broad. God is never stingy with his grace. It has been poured out on this earth and reaches the men of every nation, tribe, and language group out there. It, it encompasses both Jews and Gentiles. It can reach into the heart of the chief of sinners. It is so rich that once it encircles a heart and touches a life, it fills that life and heart with love, joy, peace, and faith. Leon Morris points out this verb translated exceedingly is also used in Ephesians 1.19 as the exceeding greatness of his power. And it's used again in Ephesians 3.19 of the greatness of the love of Christ which passes or exceeds knowledge. Paul used it here in Ephesians 2 to bring out the truth that the riches of God are boundless. Understand, when you go to heaven, there's going to be nothing but blessings. It will continue throughout the coming ages. These blessings shall descend on those who have placed their hope and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Please understand, don't put your hope, don't put your trust in anything but Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ and the works that he did that saved your soul. Trust in him and him alone. Matthew Henry says, Observe what is the great design and aim of God in producing and affecting the coming change. John Calvin says regarding this verse, It was the design of God to hallow in all ages the remembrance so great of goodness. Charles Hodge says about this phrase, It is better, therefore, to take it without limitation for all future times. You can't put limits on this grace. You can't put limits on the blessings that come from it. Once God has begun pouring his grace into your heart and life, it will forever be an unstoppable flow. That's wonderful. He's not going to stop pouring it on you. Does it not stand to reason that if God is the one who raised you up from the dead and gave you a new life in Christ Jesus, that he will never stop undergirding you and continuing to demonstrate his love in your life. Paul says this is an eternal work of God that is, it will continue throughout the eons to come. Please understand, God's not playing games with you. 
He has a plan. And that plan includes the revelation of his great character. You are a part of his plan. For those who will believe and hear this glorious message of salvation in Jesus Christ, they will become an eternal demonstration of God's love, grace, and mercy. You're going to heaven. You're going to be sitting there as a testimony to the wonderful grace of God for eternity. You'll be taken to heaven. You'll be given a place at your Savior's right hand. You'll be seated with him on his throne. When he comes again to gather his people to him, you will be raised. You will be transformed into his perfect image. Your place has been secured by his works. The living out of this perfect life, the dying of an atoning death and his resurrection victory, it was all done. All done on behalf of those who would listen and hear. I pray that you have been listening. That you have heard that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's grace. There is only one path into heaven and peace. It comes through Jesus Christ. You cannot in any way earn your way into heaven. No works will gain you entrance into God's presence. Jesus makes it very clear in John 14, 6, when he declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In conclusion, understand we serve a great and a glorious God. A God who is sovereign and almighty. He made this world to serve his purpose. He made you and placed you in his world. You have but one purpose, and that is to serve his pleasure. He allowed man to go his own way, but there was a curse and on, all, on all who went their own way. That curse was death. This was still a part of his plan. Remember, God is sovereign, therefore no action of his creatures can take him by surprise. He planned for this rebellion. He predetermined that he would still save a people unto himself, and he would do it by grace. He sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, into the world to do for those he would save what they could not do for themselves. He predetermined from the beginning that he would change their hearts and give them grace and mercy. He raised them from their state of spiritual death and empowered them to believe. He promised to carry them through this life and to prepare a place for them with him and to return and take them to be with him. Take them to be with him in heaven. And once they were his, to never leave them nor forsake them. Dear ones, I hope you have heard his voice calling you. If you have not, I would call you to listen. All men, all men, including yourself, have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. He, through his grace, has sent into this world one who can save. That one is Jesus Christ. It is not hard to be saved. All you need do is search your heart. If you search diligently, you will find it fulfilled. You will find it filled with sin and rebellion. If you will confess your sins, call out to Christ with a humble heart, acknowledge yourself, your helplessness, and your sinful estate, he will hear. He will hear you and will begin that good work in you that will never end and will bring you into the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, you are indeed a gracious and merciful God. We know you are sovereign and your watch carries over all of your people in this world. You are guiding and directing the affairs of the men of this world. The nations are under your charge. Father, we just lift to you Ukraine and Israel as they both struggle against the armies of evil. And we ask that you would just bless them, Father, and minister to them. Be with those who have lost loved ones. Be with the families of those who were lost. Just bless them, Father, and watch over them and keep them safe. We thank you for this. In Christ's holy name, amen. Let us continue with hymn 717.